Welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and how the two relate. Welcome back, everybody, to the Addiction to Recovery podcast. I'm Dr. Heather Bell, family and addiction physician, and I am joined by Josh Solom, <laughs> certified peer recovery support specialist, CPRS. This is episode number 51. Yeah, That's we didn't, pretty excited. We didn't uh, acknowledge the number 50 on the last one, but uh, we just realized it today. So we're on 51. 51. So... <sighs> Yes, thank you again for all of y'all for coming back and to all of our new listeners because we just continue to get to share this with people. Um, I will do the little plug. How about that? I'm even going to do the plug. If y'all would go to one of wherever you listen to your podcasts and go to the ranking thing if you enjoy listening to us. If you don't, then don't go there. But if you enjoy (laughs) listening to us, please go give us a five-star rating. If you wouldn't mind, maybe a comment. comment. I think the comments help other people understand what it's about. And it also helps bring us higher in the search thing. So when people search addiction, which is a super common thing to search in a podcast, you know, host place, um, we get brought up sooner. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's important to understand that, yes, there's a lot of addiction based podcasts out there. And I think what sets us aside and I think what puts us in a different category is we have a very exclusive niche to what we do. You know, we have the an exclusive doctors. niche that applies to everybody. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and it's, it's new and, you know, and I don't, I'm not saying that I'm the only one, but you know, when you put a, an addiction physician uh, together with somebody who has got lived experience and, uh, and in fact that we have the, the two, different perspectives and and you know the lived experience and and heather you've uh you've probably seen so much of what we're going to talk about today was our as a grief and loss in different areas i do well and i just well different areas addiction and aside from addiction right that's what i mean it's in life in life and personally and professionally but it's interesting because i've never looked at the exact i mean stages i mean stages of grief are pretty synonymous across all aspects but when you think about it in terms of addiction or you think about this you know these other stages you have written down addiction specific i've never looked at them in a list but i've heard every single one of them on a different amounts of patients right and i think that the issue with it is is that i think for a lot of people it's never been looked at as this whole uh, process of grief Uh, and and you know like it, it was put together for the loss of a loved one you know, like when this was whole, this whole stages of grief was set up, you know, it was, the purpose was, was to address the issues with somebody losing a loved one. Well, it's to normalize emotional responses because I think perhaps because they're, they're thick, they're so variable and there's so many stages that everybody essentially goes through in one way shape or form but if you don't look at it as a continuum and you look at it as what the heck why are you so pissed or or you completely forgot that they died like the whole denial stage um i think with addiction people don't think about it this way and i started to it for me it was like more anecdotal hearing patients say things that it was just interesting to me how they would voice this without me even asking and started to think about it in terms of, you know, this loss, because you wouldn't think about it. Like you don't think about, oh, they're sad about getting out of the world that destroyed their lives. Like you don't think about it that way. And so when you are like me and you're not afraid to ask anybody any question, you really learn that. And it's fascinating and i think it really will help those of you who've never personally been through it as as a person who's used substances but everybody else especially if you have a loved one you've probably seen it and don't understand it or just for everybody in society in general this might help shift your understanding so you're a lot more empathetic and supportive and can lean with love kind of if we go back to pam's um, episode two episodes ago how 
during that process and where return to use or cravings or triggers, why they come up. And it's because of these stages. Right. And that's that, that's that whole thing about being knowledgeable and, and trying to understand, like you said, with empathy, what is happening in that, you know, like if, if you, if you had somebody that you know, that lost a, a father, you know, unexpectedly, you would expect a lot of emotional roller coasters and you would, you know, be ready for them and, and kind of be ready to help them through them. Mm-hmm. And you're right when you say that you, people, people probably don't think, well, why would anybody grieve the loss of a meth addiction? Right. But the, people have to understand that it's, you, you end up missing There's the drug. A, right. You miss the experience. You miss what the drug can provide for you. Right. And I want to quick, before we get more in depth into that comment is I also want, not only is this helpful for the loved ones or the support people or society to understand, I think this is hugely important for people who are in recovery or in active use or keep going back and forth to understand, because I think there's so much, obviously we've said it a thousand times, guilt and shame surrounding an addiction and and return to use and hopelessness and people who are have used or are using that maybe they're afraid to say they miss it or maybe they think that's weird or maybe they think oh my gosh because i miss it or because i xyz this they ha- they have no hope for ever hitting recovery so i think it's also okay for people who are using to take this and not an excuse, but to take it and just to accept things and know that you're not weird. You're not, this, this is common and it's okay. And it's okay to voice that. It's, and maybe people know this because they've sat in a meeting and this is probably something people talk about in meetings, maybe, but it's good for everybody to understand. Right. And, and, but I think that you're right that they do talk about this in meetings and, and people bring this up. I just don't think that it's looked at like the way we're going to set it out today very much. Well, no. And if you're in a meeting, great. Not everybody loves meetings. If you have a peer support person, this is a safe place to have these conversations. This should be a safe place to have conversations though with the medical community. Right. And that is where I don't think people are feel safe to have this conversation. Right. I don't think until maybe I heard this a couple of times, I would have never brought this up right. because you don't think to. But I don't think a patient would <laughs> flat out tell me, maybe not the first few times I met them, I can usually pull things out of people pretty easily, but to say, I really miss my meth or my yeah. <laughs> fentanyl, I don't think people just voluntarily say that because no. they're afraid of the medical community because of years or experiences in the past, just historical trauma based. Well, and- one of the things that people are probably scared of is if they say they miss it, then people th- start thinking that they're, they're going to relapse. Or I'm going to be like, okay, let's get a drug screen right now. Yeah, you're right. going back to treatment. I'm calling your PI. No, that's, that's, I think one of the major fears. Mm-hmm. And I think that normalizing some of these thoughts is, is the first step in getting that conversation going and not making people feel like they're going to be judged based on the fact that, you know what? I miss getting high. Right. And, you know, to go back to the whole first thing, just miss the drug in general, is that that comment you've written down about that immediate escape, you know, right. how many people come home from work and say, I need a glass of wine, I need a beer. Why? Because you want to like escape that overwhelming anxiety, whatever of the day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same thing in a little bit different spin. So all of a sudden you have life coming at you like the last episode, Brian. He mentioned, now I have this whole laundry list of things that are coming at me. The, you, they know, people who have, are in early recovery, you know exactly what's going to make this moment better. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to deal with it versus everything on top of you. Well, I always said when, when I was first getting into the IV meth use, people would tell me, you know, you're depressed. Well, if you go to a counselor and you start taking, you know, this depression medication and you talk about it in 30 days or so you'll start feeling better. I'm like, you know what, if I can put a needle in my arm with meth in it, I'll feel better right now. And that's Mm -hmm. that immediate escape. And it's something that we as, as people with substance use disorder have used 
for you know a various amount of time. But it's but, no different than most people who want that immediate gratification or that immediate escape. Yeah, you know, it's it's an far end of the spectrum because you're right. using something illicit or whatever. But a lot of people want that. Yeah. You know, it's okay. I need to go for a run. I'm escaping. It's the fight or flight. Like I need to get out of this moment for safety. And that that's that primitive brain, that reptilian brain that all animals have like hello there's like a rabbit animal some type of prehistoric creature chasing me and i will die so what i'm gonna do i'm gonna escape it i'm gonna run it's if you look at it in that perspective you miss that right and not a lot of people have ever experienced that i can do it immediately you know right like i can just escape it's gone, and you know, and like I don't feel it anymore. And that's and that's you don't need to put things. on tennis shoes and run ten miles. No, you don't, <laughs> no, you just have to find a, a quiet spot. But you know, quiet spot, really. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, okay, so missing the ritual. So the ritual, and and every every Maybe drug has a different. Explain to people what this ritual looks like and how the ritual is actually in most cases more than it's a soothing part of it right um I'll, I'll put it this way one time when i was in my um my opiate addiction when i was going to get uh oxy from doctors i would be there would be times and i'd overuse and i'd have this process where i'd overuse and i'd go through withdrawal and i'd know i'd have to call the doctor and try and get in an appointment ahead of time and explain why i had overused or why i was out and then i'd have to get the pills and then do that so i would be in total withdrawal i'd be sweating i'd be anxious i'd be you know cold and you know all that stuff as soon as i would get an appointment with the doctor the symptoms would ease up and then once they and said then, okay i'll refill you then, it's then, like then they went away it's I mean, almost like you were taking yeah. the pill already but right. it was just it, it was all in my mind and so this whole process of it is like i knew that if i got the uh if I knew I got the appointment that I was close, you know, mm-hmm. I still was nervous that I wouldn't, that he was going to, you know, not refill me. But the other process, you know, that's one, uh, one example. Another process could be going to the liquor store. I know a lot of people and I'm, I'm not uh, like the hardcore alcoholic or in recovery. I don't drink anymore, but I'm not, I've been experienced that side of it, but they would say, you know, just driving to the liquor store was part of the ritual and they missed that. They missed the smell of going into the liquor store, mm-hmm. the, the bell that would go off or the, you know, and, and for IV drug users is a huge part. Okay. Yeah. So the, the whole part of, of taking your drug and mixing it with water, heroin, you'd have to, you know, heat it. Um, you put a little cotton ball in there and, and draw it back all that. And, and, and then the one that really gets me is when, you know, you finally get it in the vein and you see the drawback of blood all of that is like it's it's such a it is such a, a relief in a way so the process itself okay i'm going to switch this to a different analogy because you're sweating um <laughs> no, i'm doing good here. <laughs> um you know it's it, i'm gonna go back to the running thing and i don't know if it's just because i really want to go for a run but it's the even the act of that alarm clock going off at 4 30 or 5 o'clock in the morning which sounds ridiculous but that whole process, like if I knew like back in the day when I was allowed to do this and we'd meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 5, 10, the alarm going off. Somehow it wasn't as hard to get out of bed as if it tried to go off now at that time. And Or if it was just a regular work day. Or just a regular work day. And so you'd get up, you'd have this process of then I have to put on whatever layer of clothes depending on the weather. And then it's the tying of the shoes. And then it's like all of a sudden you're awake and you're excited and you're driving to where you're meeting. It's like that whole process, just knowing what was going to happen right. is, is, is a, is a part of it. It's, it's, it's a human beings like rituals and, you know, it's like packing to go on vacation, yeah. like that excitement that's built in. Right. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, I use the same thing where for hunting, the whole part about, you know, putting food plots out and building stands, all that stuff is so exciting for me because I know the reward. Right. And, and the reward for, for somebody in substance use is that, that release that that escape so yes even though you're not in introducing a chemical into your body yet the process itself is soothing so you miss that okay so the mr freedoms and i think this is where people who have not lived in the world probably are going to roll their eyes or like say okay this is whatever but the freedom thing 
you know, because, yeah, it's kind of goes along with the, the missing the escape is that you don't have to be accountable. You get to escape. You get the you don't have the, you have the freedom of re- not being responsible and not having held account. There's <laughs> that's freedom. You can go wherever you want, whenever you want. You can sleep on whoever's couch. you want. Mm. You know, there is that freedom. And that's where I think society is going to roll their eyes and say, well, like, OK, but you're an adult. So adult. Right. Um, you have freedom, but, but you're in handcuffs. Really. Right, it's and, it's a freedom to to that, right? right. It's and, like in college having to go to class. And <laughs> you, it's, know? you know, it's so hard for me to look back and actually roll. I roll my eyes at my eyes at myself. You know, um, in the moment, it's not eye rollable because it is it is real. Like you you feel like you have the freedom to do whatever you want. You know, you you're that drug or that alcohol or whatever whatever it is. It it makes it so you don't care about your responsibilities. And that's the key. That's the key. The, and it's, it's the brain changes that can lead you to not care about that. Right. And you desire that because let's face it. Once you get into recovery, the amount of responsibilities and accountabilities you have to live by are so overwhelming. So the, the, you start to get sober. No wonder why people go back because they're overwhelmed by the stuff they have to do. Right. And Yes, I'm aware that everybody needs to do this who is an adult. I'm aware of that. But when you haven't been doing that, you were never maybe grew up in an environment where that was being done. You've had this escape. You've, it is hard. Like imagine, imagine like being nine years old and then the next day you're the CEO of a company. It's It's, exactly what it's like. It's not like you gradually became this adult. It's like you became an adult overnight. And it's scary. Right. It's really scary. And that's, you know, and, and I think that we, we do look at people with substance use disorder in a way that, that makes them into the villain in a way because, because of their actions. And I, I'm not saying that family members are, are at fault for doing that. I'm just saying that there are, they are people. The, the people in substance use are people and they do get scared. Right. And the fear is real. And, and, you know, not not saying they deserve a free pass, but that's that whole empathy part that we're even talking about. Mm-hmm. Is, is you don't have to give them a free pass, but you don't have to make them feel make it harder. Yeah, right. It's. I think we touched on this with Brian in one of his other episodes, but I, it's not even like adulting. It's not okay. I need a place to live. I need a license, which that's a whole other thing of getting that back. I need a job. Okay, these are all adulting things. But when you look at what society has done, if you have a felony, good luck getting housing, good luck getting a job, good luck, whatever. So there's, yes, they quote unquote did this to themselves. So it is going to be harder. But imagine waking up one day and you're an adult and yesterday you were five (laughs) and now you need to go figure out how to do all these things. And then you're met with all these roadblocks. Like Brian's episode, what, 36 attempts to get housing? denials. Why he did not give up in there? I mean, good. I mean, amazing. We did that last time, but- it's it's not only hard, but it our society makes it dang near impossible. Right. And if people could approach this with love and support and understanding of like, I've sat with patients and I'm like, um, I'm supposed to help guide you towards the county to get insurance. And I know they're going to treat you like crap when you get there, but you got to go do it anyway. Yeah, you keep and then it. you need to walk across town because you, you can't get there any other way. And then you need to try to stand in line to, you know, apply the workforce thing. And then you also need to find somewhere to live because going to a shelter is really not a great choice. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. And that's the thing is that a lot of people don't, um, but there are a lot of people that can help. It's just that, that whole empathy part about understanding, you know, like a family member say may not understand how to do it. But they could provide that empathy to say, well, let's find somebody that can. Right. Or at least go with them. Right. To be the support person. Just to be the positive support because they're not going to be met with kind people all the time. No. And and that's where the freedoms of not having to do that stuff. um, And again, yeah, you you are leading a miserable life. But at the moment, you're looking at the other side of it as more miserable. And so you have the freedom to make that choice. To say, I'm going to put this needle in my arm so I don't have to deal with the accountability and responsibility. Okay, here's a fun analogy of how people get treated, maybe. 
imagine like most people have had COVID at this point. So imagine having a really, really, really bad case of COVID in, you know, early 21 and late 2020. So when COVID was like the black plague and you went out somewhere in public and you coughed and you look like death, Mm -hmm. how do people respond to you? Everybody like looked at you funny and they all backed away and you're like this. You're a leper. Leper. Thank you. That is what people face who are in early recovery. Mm-hmm. Even if they are wearing a business suit and they show up and that is what they face everywhere they go. And they may not actually have that people looking at it, but they see it. They yeah. feel it. They, they feel, feel it. that that's what they're looked at. Like, you know. And most people are. They're maybe better at hiding it, but most people are not looking at them with kindness. No, if they know. Right. You know, that's the thing is if they, you go to a family event... That's the hardest, you know, and we'll get to that. You treat your family the worst when you're in this uh, stages, but they're the ones that you get the most kickback from. I mean, we're watching a show now uh, called uh, Haunting of Hill House, and one of the one of the characters is a is an addict, mm-hmm. and boy, they treat him like oh crap. I mean, it, it is bad. Oh my gosh, I'm just like, yeah, it's bad. But, but, you know, the other side of it is, is like he even admits how many times he's burned them, you know. And, right. And, and it's, it's hard to be patient. It's hard to be empathetic. But I think that, like, this information is why we're putting out there is because right. it's going to help. So Okay, so death of a loved one. That is, you know, this is why I was almost, we'll bring this guy up, but Derek, Eric Clapton was one of the celebrities I've thought of to have a, you know, one of our celebrity spotlights on because he went through so many treatments and, you know, big time guitar, rock and roll guy. And he went through Hazelden um, a couple times, I think. But he ended up finding sobriety and he has been sober for, I don't even know how long. We'll get to that. But after he got sober, his, I think, three-year-old son fell out of a window in New York oh, City. Yes, that stupid um, song. Died and, and, and the guy stayed sober, you know, and that's that... That's what made me think about this is that these are some things that come up in your recovery that make it so hard, you know, and we have everyday issues with the grief and loss of, of the drug. Think about, you know, the escape that would, that you would want to feel in that scenario. So that's, that's one of those things that, you know, well, that's my million dollar question to people who are in recovery. Why are you in recovery for my kids? Okay. They just died. Now what? Right. horrible i don't say it right away and i say it with a little more tact but it's like how are you going to cope with this and i want to like add another element to this death of a loved one dealing with stages of grief is people who are in recovery feel like someone died even if they didn't it's their self like their their whole life experience like all these places these rituals the drug the freedom like they almost grieve their own death, like the death of their version of them who was the person yeah. in, a, in active use. And so, and, and it's their own self. Like imagine being at your own funeral. Like what, what do you even imagine? Like they, they have to grieve that person, even though it's a good thing in the long run and they can totally yeah. acknowledge it. They have to grieve that. Right. I mean, they, they, you have to grieve not only the loss of your addict self, but the self before you got into it. Because that you're not going to get back to that person. Right. The, the, the pre-Oxycontin Josh is never coming back. Neither is the, the Oxycontin Josh nor the meth Josh. This is a new Josh, and I'm, you know, I have had to grieve those people dying. Mm-hmm. And, and me being the, I'm, this is me now. Right. And being okay with that. Well, it's Brian said it on it. I'm sorry, I keep going back because we just taped it with him actually. And so he said, like, I am, I'm Brian, the, the drug free Brian. Yeah. And like, that's a totally different person. And that's even like how he and you know said it is, I'm a totally different person. Now, going back to the, the death of a loved one, and also I wanted, I made note about it. If you're in active addiction, if you have somebody you love that's in active addiction and a loved one dies, this is a very scary time. For, for them because they will use it to overuse. They will use it to totally want to escape because there is so much guilt and shame involved. Like if a person was to be using when they had, their dad died and they missed the funeral or they were they were too high to be, they weren't even in, wanted to be there. You know what I mean? Um, 
that can cause so much more on top of what they're already dealing with. So, you know, the death of, I mean, everybody dies. That's one of the guarantees in life. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to experience it, whether we like it or not. And it's scary. Um, But when it comes to addiction and recovery, it's, it's an added element. I had a, and and it's, I'm just going to say it now. So one of my favorite, one of my favorite patients, I laugh because of this person. Um, We went through a lot of recoveries and return to uses and recoveries and return to uses. And then I got really bad and really bad, really bad. Um, And has been in recovery now for several years and whatever. But that last stint of return to use wasn't very long lived, but it was almost like a shift in how he was using in the neighborhoods he was in. And, you know, he, this is where I really first started to think about this topic. This was a couple years ago now, but he said he, nothing about like, he's like, I am done with drugs. And like, it's a strong conviction day where you believe every single thing out of the coming out of the mouth. And I totally did. And I totally do. He said, but I miss that neighborhood i miss that house i miss my friends i miss that experience and and it's like you know it's like moving to a different country and you miss your friends and you miss the neighborhood and you miss what you did with your friends in this area because maybe in ireland they don't do the same things and you don't have the same people and so it wasn't even the drug or the ritual of the drug it was like i just miss the the lifestyle and the people even though (laughs) He knew that these probably weren't real friends, you know, or they, but that was hard. Right. And And, and he could even look back and identify like, this house wasn't really safe. There were like gunshots flying everywhere once in a while, but like you just missed that. Yeah. So it was, it it was an interesting conversation hearing that the grief of that. And that's where I really started to think like, huh. But see, yeah. this is where, this is raw honesty when people start talking about this. And that's why, you know, it's so important to, they talk about like the fourth step and the fifth step and how far back you go to, or is like acknowledging where you were wrong. Uh, the important part is to get everything out, you know, right. like, and this is one of those things that people, we talked about in the beginning, they're ashamed to say, I miss being high. Okay, well, this is patient number one where right. we had five years of fun right and that's that's the thing is is that how do we get that into a shorter period of time to be able to comfortably say that because i think that is a huge reason why people go back right is that they they don't talk about this stuff Mm -hmm. you're not able to process it i mean that's one of those words that i've i've had to accept as a you know it used to be uncomfortable when people would say you need to process that i don't know what that means and i don't know i don't even like to hear that but yes you have to process the fact that you are grieving your drug. Yes. Okay. So now we're going to go through kind of the official stages of grief. And wow, there's five, there's seven, there's depending, but we're going to kind of stick to the five. Well, and then before we hit them, I just want to say that the, there Ooh, is no I single. I'm going to touch on the seven a little bit too. There is no single way to grieve. It's just like anything, you know, like recovery. That's not a cookie cutter thing. Um, the process isn't a straight line. But these stages have been studied and studied and studied. Right. And this is the vast majority of humans go through these stages in this order. Most people in order, yes but, but the length of time you're exactly. in each stage and you might go from one go back and go one to the back so that's i, I do want to say this is very and it goes it, it it will come back you know like it's okay to hit acceptance and then end up back in in, in denial about some other aspects you know okay. it just happens okay so stage one denial so this is where you know if, if I, I i can tell i can talk with from experience you know i denied that i had a problem you mm-hmm. know um, when, especially with the oxy, <laughs> once I got to IV Matthews, I don't think I ever said, nah, I can handle this. Um, no, I, when I was, I would say that I could control it. If I just could restart and get a new prescription, I will take it as, you know, and that was, that was total denial. Well, and minimizing what's going on, minimizing the use, minimizing what you're using. I think this is probably a very common thing when people first go to treatment the first time. Right. Or you first know? are addressed with, you might have a problem, dude. Right. Um, or make jokes about it. So 
for me, eating disorder version of denial lasted 20 years. Um, okay, I would acknowledge it at times and deny it at other times, but it was kind of like you said, like, okay, this is the time. You know, I how many times, well, that's almost in the bargaining stage, actually, but like how many times did I say, okay, I don't really have a problem. I just really liked that ice cream or whatever it was. Yeah. And no, I don't really have a problem kind of deal. I was able to minimize it make jokes about it. Oh, Heather's going to go for another, add a couple miles. Like I used to do that instead of running the four miles I, with the group, I would run six and I, people joked about it. Oh, yeah. Heather's going to run one early and one late. And it was no big deal, but really it was my psychological nightmare of this eating disorder that was causing me to run the one early and one late. It so wasn't for any positive reason. Do you think, you said 20 years, but do you think, how long do you really think that, when did you identify that that was a problem? That I... Like maybe subconsciously you knew there was, but when you like consciously going, hmm, this is concerning. You're a doctor, so you you know you. You know, you'd think I would know better. Um, I think when I was in re- when I was in residency, so I was what was I twenty six when I graduated med school. So between twenty six and twenty nine, when I was in residency so was at you one had point, children. Yes, well, I had Isaac in first year of residency. So, I think it was between Isaac and Emmett, so between 2010, 11, 12 in there somewhere. I don't even know if I fully grasped it yet. This is maybe the first. I knew I had a problem with binging. Totally knew that because I actually talked to our nutritionist who gave me tips to not binge, but they didn't work. But that I always tried to find ways around addressing it, but I don't think I ever said I'm bulimic. Um and the exercise was just like, I'm just exercising. Right, yeah, now in college, I knew that the calorie thing was not normal, but I don't ever, because I never puked. So I'm like, I'm not being like, I don't throw up. I can't, I try. Yeah, I can't. I don't know if I really truly said, okay, I really, really have a problem until I ran that marathon with Heather in 21 because I started treatment at 22 yeah 21 October of 2021 when we were running and she told me she had been to the Emily program and we talked about her story and I was like oh that's like mine so that was when you were consciously knowing that was when I was finally accepting that I had this problem subconsciously you probably knew for a while yeah yeah I mean I mean I think I went through these stages of grief before I got to acceptance but it wasn't really grief yet yeah it was pre. Pretty. It was the contemplative, pre-contemplative right. that stage. Well, where I, I, lived. I look at my journey with the uh, with the painkillers. I remember one of the one of the turning points was when I had Ben, when Ben was born. That's when I I think I really realized that I had a problem because I was preoccupied with painkillers. Right. When I should have been totally immersed in in, in being right. a dad, and yeah. I had already done that kind of with coaching. You know, I'd seen my my attention to coaching kind of get adjusted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was one of those indicators that I realized I had a problem, but I always would deny it. Right. I'd deny it to myself. Nobody even knew about it, really. You know, my ex-wife didn't know. My, but once I, once I started to really feel like it was a problem, I would deny it to myself. You know, maybe I'd address it. Oh, this might be a problem, but nope. I got this. You know, I don't know if I denied it, actually, for so many years. I think I knew more than subconsciously. I knew there was something wrong with I mean, I knew what I was doing. I knew taking the diet pills wasn't safe. I knew the, di- the laxatives weren't good. I knew that all, but I had it under control. That's the difference. Right, yeah. I wasn't... I I had it under control. I was healthy. I could run. I was doing school. I was doing residency. I was doing momming. I did all of the stuff, so I was totally fine. I don't think I truly grasped the severity of what was going on until I got refeeding syndrome last April. And that is a... um, that's a major event that points it out. And I I think that this happens a lot with um, alcohol. Uh, I I think more... I don't think you're, you're able to really justify or... Um, deny the fact that you have a problem if you're an IV meth user or heroin user. But I think if you're an uh, alcohol, you know, it, it kind of, if you're going to work every day and you're functioning, 
Right. You can justify or you can say you don't have a problem. If it were a problem, I wouldn't have my job. If it were a problem, I wouldn't still be married. If right. I had a problem, I wouldn't have a house. All that stuff. Exactly. And, and that's, that's where that analogy. denial mm-hmm. is so prevalent in that world. Yes. I want to say the, the, the stages of grief we're talking about, although everybody knows that it's the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. I just feel like we should give sure. that. What I want to add is this modified ex- Extended. The first stage in this extended one, which has an asterisk, is called shock. So not everybody's going to have this. It's like you found out your parent died. Shock. Right, yeah. Then you get to denial. The other, in drug world, I would say you wake up in the hospital because you had a major overdose. Overdose. Okay, shock. or, Or even like an arrest. Right. Or for even like you, like you just talked about your, when, when you had last, last April. Mm-hmm. That's a shock. Or Zeta saying, no, and Heather, you're anorexic. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, those are, it's a good point. You know, there are those shocking moments that will make you realize I do have a problem. Right. Um, the, the issue is, is that a lot of times people will skim over that, you know. And, right. Um, okay, so we go from denial to anger. Um, this, oh, <laughs> this is a fun one for me. Yeah. And I don't even think it's always when someone like approaches you like, hey, you have a problem. No, I don't. No, I don't. Okay, screw you because you said I had a problem. I mean, I got angry at Zeta the second she said that to me. But it can be angry at yourself. It can be angry at God. It can be anger at the world. It can be angry at your gen. It can be anger at everything because you're mad you have to deal with this or you have this issue or the whole why me well, thing. You're projecting onto everybody else because really you're angry with yourself. But for me, you know, a lot of, and, and I think this is common, it's directed towards the cl- people that you're closest to. And my family can attest to that. And I mean, my dad um, had to deal with me when he was the one, him and my mom, you know, were the most consistently supportive. And they were just grasping with straws, you know, trying different things. And, and I would just take it out on them. Right. Um, and this is the toddler thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> Kids and babies and infants, uh, kids take out their, you know, you get your kids back from grandma's for the week and they're like, oh, they're so well behaved. And you're like, or you say, oh my God, they're just horrible today. And they're like, oh, they're always well behaved for me. And my response is like, oh, that's because they feel safer with me. Right. Right. (laughs) So yeah, it's the same thing. You get angry at the people who you feel safest with who've always been there for you. Yeah. And then that's, that's hard to live with after the fact, you know, you have to carry that with you too. Um, and that's, that is where, you know, I think, and, and again, I'm not trying to tell loved ones what to do or to not hold their, you know, people that I'm going to tell them to go back to listen to Pam's episode. episode right. But I mean, I, I do think it's important for them to realize that maybe this isn't, this isn't their true colors. Right. And, and they don't truly take it do personal. Love you. Yep. And, and then, and then at the end, you know, when things are through, you know, to be comfortable with saying, you know, Josh, I know that you know, you're carrying a lot of guilt for the way our relationship went, you know, for the way that you treated me. And I acknowledge that it wasn't great, but I'm not, I'm not going to hold it against you. Like that whole, I forgive you for that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's don't take it personally and then understand to not shame them. You treated me like crap during that. I get it. My gosh, I, (laughs) they already know it. They know it. They know it. Um, but I think it is worth the person who's done that, who's, been in use and, and you know like with your parents like you can't i think this is what stage five where you're supposed to like make amends or whatever yeah, stage that is step step five i said stage step five where you then so i think it's important if you were that person who was you know projecting this anger onto your closest loved ones at some point i think it is going to help so much your own healing and your relationship healing to then approach them and acknowledge and apologize Um, and then if you're receiving that acknowledgement and apology accept it love them move forward don't re-remind them for everything you're apologizing they're apologizing for they know but it's it's uh, we we as people in recovery we put ourselves through hell Uh, you know the, the scariest thing is to be alone and to be left with your own thoughts and 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 so to know that there's there's a there's love in that family is so key to get through some of those regrets and so it, it is going to be a normal stage and this is where we talk about this whole empathy thing knowing that this is a normal stage nobody wants to go to treatment nobody 
And and when if there's a person that has been the reason, I avoided it. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a person that Inpatient. has been, like I would get so mad at my probation officer because she made me go. Right. You know, or my parents because they made me go before I could come home. All that stuff is, and then that anger is just pointed at the people that are trying to help you. So. Right. Okay. The next stage is bargaining. So this is where you're, this is where I won the argument. I was told go to inpatient and I'm like, no, I'm an outpatient. Uh, and only an addiction, an addiction doctor <laughs> could do what you did. Could argue my way out of this. Uh, okay, give me a chance. Give me a chance. Emily Program said, nope, nope. Actually, nope. Ralph will attest to the fact that I bargained my way out of inpatient into the outpatient. So. And that lasted for how long? Um, uh, two weeks. But, you know, bargaining, like I'm going to convince you and others that I can do this. I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to make a deal with God. Well, I was able, well, Zeta welcomed me and said, okay, I'll give you a chance. But here's, here's, here's the boundary. Um, and we have talked about it several times in the last almost, what, almost 16 months. So I've been in Teen Challenge almost twice. Um, that it, it was not an easy thing, and but I had a good argument. Uh, and it worked for me. I think... I had to do the work though, and I had to be held accountable, and I had to go all the time. I think if you're an IV substance user, especially well, in this story, day and yeah. age, I mean, like, day day and age, and it's I almost like been, safety. I had been dealing with this for 20 years. Yeah. I had it somewhat under control, but I needed to prove this. The, um, the, and I think in your, I, I think your scenario, there may have been, and not, not every assessment is is spot on. You know what I mean? And so, and I'm not I'm not advocating for people to. Um, you know, to argue against their assessment. I'm just saying in your case, I think that there, there was some justified reasons, but however, I'm going to own, I'm going to own this though. When I got refeeding syndrome, I understood exactly why Emily program said you need to go. It took me six months or it took me a while, six months. It was six months after I started treatment. I finally got to the point that my body was like catching up and it went too far. I understood at that moment why they said that yeah so i got i got lucky but at the same time bargaining and that is that's part of it that is all that's part of the process and that's why it's listed in here mm -hmm. uh, people don't don't really understand that that is a normal thing right people get blamed for why why are you trying to fight this why? Why are you trying to fight this? Well, because it's a normal part of it. Right. Like, well, I won't do it again. Like, God, if you let me wake up tomorrow, right. then I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. The, the, as Brian said, the, the 911 prayer. Right. But, you know, that, and that's the thing. You're, you're also bargaining with yourself and you're bargaining with God. But then when it doesn't work, <laughs> there's more shame. It, there's more shame because you're the one that said, I can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do this. And again, even in the haunting of Hill House, we saw that. You know, they said, I'm done this time. I'm done this time. And every time I see something like that in, in media, I cringe because I, I remember how many times I've said that. Mm -hmm. I'm really done, Dad. I'm, I'm never going to go back. I promise. I promise. Right. Then I mean, it just makes my skin crawl because of the amount of time. So, yes, we do bargain. And yes, we do bargain our way into a worse situation sometimes, but we also have to go through that. I, I would actually be, I'd be concerned if somebody was just like, yep, I'll go. I'd be like, wait a minute, what's the ulterior yeah, motive Usually, that, usually there's on? a catch. There's usually <laughs> not <laughs> this easy. Okay, next stage, depression. So you're like, okay, I just lost, <laughs> just lost this argument, and now it's, now I need to sit with myself. And I need to is, sit with my thoughts. I need to. I need to. I need to have that accountability and responsibility hit me in the face now. Yes. Because all of that stuff I avoided is now staring me in the face, and it's looking very evil, and yes. that's depressing. That's very depressing because you you start to see what a piece of garbage of a life you were living. Right. It's like okay, here's all my charges. My kids just got taken. Yeah. I'm sitting in treatment. <laughs> I can't really deny that this drug use is a problem anymore. Right. It's this, now I, I'm just angry. You yeah. went through anger, you went through the bargaining, and now you're just like you're depressed, depressed about it. And and if people haven't experienced depression, it's hard to really make sense of this. But it's it's literally you just don't want to even you don't want to move. You right. don't want to you don't want to go forward. 
you, you, you know, you're not going backwards, but you just want to crawl in a hole. And that's a, that's a scary place to be because you really lost, you lost all motivation to, to move forward. Right. And that's where it's a very crucial stage. And this is where like treatment centers, peer support specialists, doctors like yourself, this is where it's an important stage to be able to, to assist somebody out of this, you know, the, if you sit in this too long, this is where motivational interviewing will help. Right. And that then you start to take ownership of what's happening because there's nothing more depressing than realizing that you did it to yourself. I've said that how many times, you know, like I've done this to myself. That's hard to do. That's hard to see your reality because in your drug use, in your substance use, you, you spend a lot of time pointing the finger. Yes. You spend a yes. lot of time saying, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't be where I'm at. If it wasn't for this person's actions, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And, and ultimately, when it comes down to it, when you find recovery, nobody finds recovery by putting all the blame on somebody else. Right. You end up having to take your ownership, and that is hard to do. Very hard. And it's depressing. Okay. So the next stage, this is where um, so th there's a couple different seven stages, and this one is it can be called the testing. Um, it can be called the uh, before you can I reevaluating. Yeah. Before I, I just wanted to point out that this this depression stage. It, it can be a, a, one of those continuous things throughout this process. Yes. Or point. it can hit somebody. Like right now, all of a sudden, it just hits them. And that's the scary one. That's the scary one because sometimes people start to feel that depression when they're in denial or anger or bargaining. And sometimes it lasts through acceptance even. And it almost um, becomes but like But if a, it hits. Yeah, if it hits, I've seen it happen. It, it all of a sudden hits and off they go. Because when it hits so hard... That's when it's so uncomfortable. Where I've seen it hit the hardest is the people who have the ACE score of 10. And you oh, just sure, got yeah. them off their substances. And now it's like, I can't describe the look on a person's face at that moment. But it's, that's, yeah, it's the so, hit hard is yeah. bad. So be ready for that if you're a loved one. Or if you're, you know, this is the other message is to people that are entering this, this whole group, grieving your loss of your drug. Be ready for that. Be ready for the, that whole depression thing to hit it's well, not something that we really want to pre be prepared for and and think that that's going to happen it's something we want to avoid well and this is kind of one of those to. prep for it you know like Ex you're starting best, to bargain those. you're being angry maybe somewhere in there you start identifying the person you are willing and ready and comfortable going to for help yeah you know like Maybe it's not your parent you just took everything out on, but maybe, you know, you're anticipating potentially hitting this brick wall of depression that we just told you about. Maybe start thinking about who can I go to if I hit that brick wall of depression because this is where suicide comes in. Right. And that's the last thing anybody wants. So maybe identify that safe place. And it, it can be anybody, hopefully not your dealer. But, yeah. you know, it's who can you go to when you're in that place? So. And this is also important to say that the, the, this is a process that takes time. So a lot of people are under the misconception that once they get through withdrawal, we're free and clear. No, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. the, the grief, the stages of grief are going to take a while. Right. Okay, so the next stage is kind of, this is the one that's not typically in this. Again, it's this testing stage, which people can say it's kind of your reevaluating stage. So you're kind of figuring out, you're not accepting anything quite yet. You're there, but you're like, okay, how do I do this? Um, maybe there's a return to use for like a half a minute, you know, like this lapse thing. Or maybe it's, okay, what should I be doing with my life? If this is still all true, that I'm kind of starting to get to accepting that these drugs are bad, like you have to start thinking about what does the future then look right. like? Um, Almost like making a plan. Yeah, it's definitely that making a plan, you know, but How do you sure fit you into the picture of this new life? Yeah. Like, what does this new life actually look like? What do I want to do about work? What do I want to do about this? It's like, what does my future look like? Because here, I mean, like you, for example, like you had this coaching and teaching thing. And then it's like, 
okay, but what now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's that. Like, if, if I keep going in this, what does that all look like? Well, so this is like knowledge, and I've been dealing with this with my personal life, is, is putting knowledge into action, and that is called wisdom. And I think that's where this is. You know, it's like knowing what you need to do and thinking about what you need to do versus actually doing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the acceptance is, comes in. But So, yeah, the testing, I think, is, is the knowledge part. Yes. Okay, last stage. Acceptance. And that's, mm-hmm. this is something that was going to have to happen over and over and over and over and over again. just going to say that. It's, it's not a one-time thing. You are going to go back and you are going to, I mean, that, that's part of the trigger talk, you know, the cravings talk, you know, that acceptance of I have a problem. I'm, I'm never going to get, <laughs> I mean, it's not like this uh, negative word of I'm never going to get over this, but you know, I mean, it's just always going to have an issue with meth. I'm always going to have an issue with painkillers. I'm always going to have an issue with alcohol and, and, and accepting of that. But there's one, there's times like a um, glass of wine. Sounds sounds good, but I have to accept it at that point that it's not. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Well, and that's that's where it's it's hard because you're like I've accepted. For instance, I've accepted. Okay, here's my diagnosis, and I'm accepted. I'm in treatment. But man, there are days I'm like so mad that I have to do this, or you know, sad, or I'm going to bargain with this. Okay, well, I can go for this run today, and I won't do this tomorrow, or you know. The denial is not as much there because it's like, I can't really deny this anymore. I can't really say, though, this was never a problem. But it is normal to go through all of that, especially when, remember, anyone who's used substances or whatever in a happy mode, that's the go-to. And you're sad, your drugs are your go-to. If you're angry to escape, your drugs, you're bored. Like, that is, that is the freeway that's been built in the brain, that when anything stressful happens, no one's going to go down the dirt road when they're on the freeway. Like those are the paths you have to build. So as you're in recovery or your early recovery or the years and years and years, it's continuing to pave these quote unquote healthier coping mechanisms. So that becomes the go-to as well. You know, I get stressed in whatever, like it's hard to not be like, okay, I want to go for a run or I'm just going to eat this whole pie and ice cream or I'm just not going to eat at all. It's, Hard. You can't un th- unremember that. You know, you, it's always going to be there to think about that part of your life. It's in, until you get to the acceptance stage, it's going to be you're going to be at risk. Right. And you're still at risk in a way, but I mean, it's it's the amount of acceptance that you do. And once I think you get to the depression stage, I think the denial stage is gone in a way. Because once you go through that accepting that, man, this is a problem and I am never going to be able to do this again, um, maybe the denial comes up for a moment. I think but. the denial is, if we're looking at drugs, the denial is, especially with alcohol, you get through that stage and you're like, well, I could just have one. That's the problem. That's the problem. That's, that's where I think the denial still can uh, show back up. Um, so how do you? One sh- I, don't, I don't think I've ever said. Oh, I think I can just have one more shot of meth. No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. Um, but, I think this—the whole coping. What do you do? Like, I think accepting that everyone's going to go through this the cycle at some point, and that you know the best way to get over it, which I get over it. The best way to come out the other side is to have to go through it. Like, yeah. it's and okay to about, feel these stages. Right. Then the best way to get over it is to go through it is like you got to go through the stages of grief, which you can't go over it. You can't go under it, <laughs> which, which you sucks. have to go through. We're going on a bear hunt here, y'all. If you look at the stages of grief, nobody goes, I want to do that. Right. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't look like a trip to Valley Fair or Six Flags. You know, oh. that is, that is like a, that's, that's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> It's so awful to look at. The, I got to go through this stuff. Well, yeah, you do, because that is the process of getting past this this whole thing with addiction. And, and that's all healing. That's brain healing. It is. Like, you're not choosing to to bargain. And like you your brain and, has to heal. And you didn't choose to have a loved one die either. You didn't choose to. Well, maybe you know the the the, the loss of of a, a career, let's say, or something happens, and you know even like a physical injury. You have to go through the grieving process. 
And nobody wants to have to go through it, but you have to. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in it. Right. And so, and, and, and you know, there's just a couple of things you just want to touch on. And these are, these are pretty standard of ways you can start that process of getting. This is like what medical students learn. Doctoring 101. <laughs> this right, is exactly. not a checklist of this no, is how you should do it. This, this is, is This is a simplistic version. And this is very simplistic. And it's something that I think most people are going, well, duh. Well, um, but I think in early recovery, I think sometimes you need that duh, that right. checklist, like we talked about with Brian, get out of bed, check, okay, look, I accomplished One something thing, today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's uh, eat healthy, and I think a lot of treatments kind of fail at this because they're just trying to get you to eat, period. But, you know, like... <laughs> Heather, a bag of yeah. Sour Patch Kids, yeah, no. that's good. That counts for you today. <laughs> right, right. It's eat something. Something. Yeah. So start eating healthy. Exercise at least four times a week. And I think for me, like I started to go for walks when I was at uh, Teen Challenge. I, we didn't have like a walking area, but we were building. We'd walk around it, and it was a process. I would get my butt out of the couch cushions or the chair, and I'd get up and I'd walk four laps or whatever, and that was a mile. It was something. Can I go do that? <laughs> well, you can walk. Can I go exercise four times a no. week? <laughs> Spend time with loved ones. You know, like if you're in recovery and you're now on, let's say you're not in treatment and you're just, you're living alone or whatever. Isolation is the worst. Isolation is the worst. Go find, there's people out there that will love you, that will love on you. And if you are, if you are. <laughs> okay, please make them help. <laughs> yeah. If you are one of those people that you have a loved one that's in early recovery, make yourself available. You know, that's, that's one of the key things is that people don't like to ask. You know, they are afraid of rejection. So you can, t- you can eliminate that, that fear of rejection by saying, hey, Josh, do you want to come over for dinner on Thursday night? We it would will love to pay have off at some point. I mean, they will. will return they, that favor. And they will, they will eventually come. Mm-hmm. They will eventually start to open themselves up. But right now in that early stages, they are afraid of getting hurt again. Right. So um, avoid old hangouts. That's pretty uh, standard. Um, you know, don't go to a bar. Uh, you know, <laughs> just don't. I mean, I know you have friends there or that you think don't go to a bar. Um, give back. I That's think, one thing that I think that is so important is that, you know, you give back. There's a lot of recovery things that happen. You know, like there's a, I know there's a recovery um, night at the wild game coming up where you No, can, it already happened. Oh, it already happened. Okay. My bad. Um, but there's times where there's like um, walks or things like that. Um, back go volunteer volunteer do something to make you feed your soul i mean if you're sitting alone there's a lot of guilt and shame over all the things you've done or people you've hurt and obviously it's not going to bring any of that back or make that go away but if you can give back it will help you as well i think ryan mentioned people you're helping right ryan mentioned that about how much he took away from the world when he was selling drugs and you know just little things he can do to give back right and then the last one we'll talk about is pray or meditate. Well, and I, I say pray. In the recovery well, yeah, but that was kind of into the giving back too. Yeah. Um, but you know, like that that whole thing about I've, I've learned about about chasing peace or what peace having peace really means. And, and one of the things they said is that you remove worry and you add prayer and you get peace. And that's the that's that thing about you know if you ever struggling, find time to get yourself in prayer. Um, if you're not one of the people that that are are connected to God, meditate, think on positive. positive right. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. There you go. Okay. We need to wrap yep. up this. Let's um, do it. Okay. So our slivery highlight today is Demi Lovato, who was, I forgot this, and my sister was the ages in which Barney was a thing. Barney. <laughs> Barney man. and friends. So what a terrifying animal. Demi Lovato was on Barney and Friends at one point, was in Camp Rock, Camp Rock 2, Disney Princess at one point. Um, They have a YouTube documentary series, Demi Lovato Dancing with the Devil, which it's, I guess, very, I haven't seen it, so I got to go watch it. There's a two-part series, I believe. Very all out there. Apparently, some of their doctors and family members are on this. So... Kind of the story is, grew up with a dad with alcohol use disorder, very abusive towards the mom. Maybe he, he had some bipolar schizophrenia in there. Mom misused Xanax. This is all open, so I'm not giving out any secrets. I don't know these people personally. You weren't their doctor? I was not their doctor. No idea what's any of this. <laughs> so started to drink alcohol as a student, so middle school, high school, just kind of going to parties. 
tried cocaine the first time at 17 while on the Disney Channel. Okay. First, shocking. <laughs> not shocking. Go look at the list. Um, started to use cocaine and Xanax together. Went to treatment for the first time at age 18 and did kind of the cycling of treatment. Acknowledges eating disorder in there, self-harming behavior in there. Very traumatic childhood. This was a lot of escape things. Had five albums go out during this time as well. Um, six years of recovery is, is kind of where they claimed from March 2018 was marked six years of recovery. So okay. we're going, so we had a couple years of a lot of use in recovery. Um, by 2018 would have been about 26, okay. if we're 18 and 2010. Yeah, 26-ish. July of 2018 was kind of the life-changing event, huge life-changing event, overdose return to use so apparently what happened so it was six years and then a return to use and an overdose <laughs> yes um, which will explain why there was an overdose is, is that there was that long absence right well I mean, it helps it, I mean, it got pretty pretty significant so it, was it a long return to use no oh. no 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 um no not even at all what ended up happening is hey i can just have some wine hmm. went and got a box of wine which then turned into calling a dealer within 30 minutes which then turned into a heavy binge of meth, cocaine, molly, THC, alcohol, and oxy. Sounds um, like a party. At least that was kind of what it said. But specifically asked the dealer for Xanax and Coke. Dealer said, I only have heroin and crack. <laughs> so got some dependence on heroin. Um, so this last use in 2018. So this was all like a two-month, three-month period of time. So dealer gets comes over, says, here's some H, some heroin. Um, dealer leaves. The, the thought is this is fentanyl at this point, although this is 2018, this is early, but that's the thought. Next morning, the her their assistant comes in to check on, on, on Demi here and found her naked in blue, called 911, and got Narcan, was hospitalized a long time. This, this is very out in the public. Right, this yeah. was a huge event. Had three strokes and a heart attack during... Because of this overdose, they said even a half an hour more before that assistant Dead. came in, there would have been no chance. So this is this is a fluke because again, who knows what time the you, dealer left? Sometime in the middle of the night. Right. Um, now cannot drive because of some blind spots left from from um, the overdose from the overdose and all these strokes. Had to go through dialysis, multi organ failure. This was so there was a, there was like shutdowns of a lot body. of shutdowns during because of this overdose yeah. so um, very significant and then I find so there's a lot of grieving happening in here sure. because you're can't grieving drive, the physical, can't, a lot yeah. of physical changes um, this is where I find it super interesting they said that quarantine actually helped during the COVID quarantine because it was For like mm -hmm, forced dealing with the trauma. Sure. So that is where they finally kind of went back. I shouldn't say finally, but that's where they're really able to go back and work through all the childhood trauma and all the trauma they had been through. Yeah. Um, and then a short 18 months later, so roughly, you know, this was July of 2018. So now we're at the beginning of 2020. So even before the COVID. quarantine COVID happened, sang at the Grammys and sang the national anthem in the Super Bowl. So there's, so this is the purpose of doing these celebrity highlights is to say, like, this happens to anybody and everybody, I mean, and you can come back from it. I mean, seeing the Super Bowl 18 months after literally darn near dying. And, and again, we always hear about the overdose. We always hear about the arrest. We rarely hear about what they're doing and how they've gone now. You know, and like the, that's why we have to look that up. Right. You know? and, and we want to highlight that. And again very so this the one interview i got most of this information from was an interview done in 21 um and that's because they were very open with their story and did this documentary series where it's very direct and I'm that's to that. share and spread this this disease and how it can happen to anybody right. and um so yeah good work demi lovato yeah well thank you for all that research mm -hmm. and um i i, I encourage people to to really look into the stages of grief thing for whether or not you're in the, you're the person in recovery or person looking for recovery or the family, um, really take a look at that and, and also bring it to your counselors or bring it to your 
um, your addiction doctors or your peer support specialists. Bring it and talk about it because, like we said in the beginning, the reason why it's not talked about is because people are ashamed to say that I still have, you know, I miss my misusing drugs. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't go through the stages of grief until you admit that there needs to be a grieving period, period of time. Correct. So, all right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Working together, we can move addiction to recovery. If you would be so kind, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating, possibly a comment, but for sure click to follow us so you never miss an episode. Most importantly, don't forget to share our episode with a friend. And as always, if you would like to ask us a question, have a topic recommendation, or would even want to be a guest on our show, email us at addictiontorecoverypodcast at gmail.com. That's addiction, the number two, recoverypodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at A2RPodcast or on Facebook or Instagram at Addiction to Recovery Podcast.